Welcome to the season one finale of the Parlay in All Blue with me, Mark Dawson. We have so enjoyed doing this podcast. It's been a God-granted privilege to do this work in this way during this time. We don't take it for granted at all. I want to give a big thanks to Jasmine, who is the CEO of Creative Gym Media and our producer. Also, Flip, my man at Fixing Your Podcast for doing the editing and engineering. I want to thank each and every guest who gave of their time at a time when when they didn't have to, because in some cases we had people come onto the show before we even had a logo and agreed to to give their time and expertise. So we, we don't take any of that for granted. And we don't take any of you who are listening to us again, who are who have repeated in your listening. We, we thank you for all of that. Now, if this is your first time listening to the show, you are just in time because this show is in many ways a summary of season one and a bridge to our next season, which will come later. We're going to take a little break right now, but we will be back. On this episode of the Parlay in All Blue, we have Dr. Stephen Finley, who is the inaugural chair of African and African-American studies at LSU. He is also an associate professor of religious studies at LSU as well. This episode was recorded a day before the killing of 10 black people simply buying groceries in their neighborhood, killed by a white supremacist mass murderer who wittingly or unwittingly has been sucked into the religion of whiteness. Now, a couple of terms to help you through this. Whiteness studies is the study of structures that produce white privilege, the examination of what whiteness is when analyzed as a race, culture, and source of systemic racism. Whiteness or blackness, in this case, is not about skin color or width of noses or thinness of noses, texture of hair, or if your DNA traces back to Europe or Africa or Asia or anything like that. That's not what this is about. A way to understand this is that Candace Owens, a black phenotype woman, she has dark skin, she has melanin in her skin, she has full lips, she has a nose of someone who is from Africa in their DNA. She supports, protects, promotes, and organizes around whiteness as much as Tucker Carlson or any MAGA rally attending. This is not about how someone looks or who your mama is or who your daddy is. Religion in this case is not about faith or theology or divinity. It's not about Christianity. I am a Christ follower. It's not about Judaism or Islam or Buddhism or anything like that. Religion in this context is the pursuit of or interest to which someone ascribes supreme importance. Think high school football in Texas. It's like a religion. Or one of my favorite rappers, KRS-One, talks about the temple of hip hop. He's dedicated to hip hop. He loves hip hop. He organizes himself around hip hop. That's what we're talking about, religion in this context. It's not about faith or where you worship. 
where you're going to church or the synagogue or to mosque. That's not what we're talking about. Dr. Finley, whose fields this is, right? This is his fields, both religion and African and African-American studies. So this is his bag. He's going to walk through us how religion, the religion of whiteness, fuels attacks or the religion of white nationalism, if that helps you get to it better, or white supremacy fuels attacks like that in Buffalo or at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh or at the Walmart in El Paso, Texas, where the mass shooter in that case was specifically looking for Mexicans or Mexican immigrants. This is about how it morphs and organizes into policy and political movements like anti-CRT or blocks funding for baby food formula or pronounces edicts like don't say gay in Florida. It's about how it becomes violent and how it produces policies that are at the same time violent to the people who don't have the basic rights or humanity that someone living in the United States should have per the Constitution. I'll stop there because the conversation and Dr. Finley's insights do a much better job at all of this than I'm doing in this introduction. I want to say thank you again for joining us and thank you again for supporting us. And we hope you are enlightened and informed by this episode of the Parlay in All Blue. Dr. Stephen Finley, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. How are you today? Thank you very much. I'm doing pretty well and I'm happy to be here. Well, listen, there's a lot lot that I want to, to cover today, especially sort of where we are as a nation in terms of just the legislation, the, the atmosphere, and just what's happening socially and politically and a lot of things. But before we get into that, I want to put sort of things in context and just just give our audience an idea of who you are. And and my understanding is, is that, or I have this right, is that you are an associate professor of religious studies and African and African-American studies at LSU. Is that right? That have That's right. Because you got a lot of different hats. <laughs> and then you are also the inaugural chair of African and African-American studies at LSU as well. That is correct. And about those uh, number of different hats, somebody should talk to LSU about that. Yeah. Hey, listen, <laughs> and I hope you have a, a good mattress and a firm pillow or what have you, because you're going to need some rest, brother, with all that you have going, especially right now. And over the course of the conversation, I do want to to get into some things about what it's like to be a black professor, a historically white college in, in this moment, and a lot of other things. But I really want to start with what is religious studies? What, is, what does that mean? What does that mean? Yeah, thank you for the, the, the question. And I'm really happy to be here and happy to, to answer that. There's a saying in religious studies that if you ask a hundred different scholars of religion, to say something about religion or define religion, you'll get a hundred different definitions. So I'm going to give you what I think is, is sort of a middle ground 
that captures in general how scholars of religion understand the field. The study of religion or religious studies is about institutions, but it's also not about institutions in terms of definitions and descriptions of religion. I understand religion not in the institutional sense, that is, in terms of churches or synagogues or mosques or temples and gods or creeds and clergy. I understand religion as something more basic to human beings than that. And you're probably going to ask this. I'll just offer it up front. I understand religion much more as something basic about, about what it means to be human and how humans seek to organize their world and make sense of it such that they find themselves in the world in a meaningful sense and can locate themselves in an ultimate sense. And so for me, that might include these institutional settings, but there are all kinds of things that people do that don't end up in institutions and that are prior to those developments that I want to see as religious. And these are the things that scholars of religion study. And, and uh, I'll add one, one other thing. You'll find a range of interest in the study of religion. Religion in sports or sports as religious, for example. Religion in politics, studies of traditions and practices. And so it's really a broad area that describes human, the study of human meaning-making processes. So thank you for that. So what, we, what we're talking about is we're not talking about theology here. Not at all. Not, not talking about theology. And we're not talking about necessarily, we're not eliminating, for instance, the history of the AME church or the history of the Church of England. Those aren't eliminated. Correct. But we're not talking about theology or spirituality in, 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 the, in the sense of the way people think about religion. No. In fact, I would, I, would, I would understand those things you mentioned as second and third order developments of what I want to see essentially as religion. And that is, again, this drive. Some people call it a quest, this need to find meaning in the world in the ultimate sense and to organize the world such that it's coherent. Now, this develops into all kinds of things, institutions, creeds, uh, the formulation of gods and clergies, you know, in professional class. But ultimately, when I say religion, I'm talking about this primary order whereby all human beings. And so so I'm I'm actually going to differ from many scholars of religion because I think everyone is religious, whereby all human beings seek to uh, to make meaning of their world and their world coherent. And that's what I want to understand as, as religion. Yeah. So when I hear just as a basic connection that I can make is that a lot of people, so we're both in the South right now, is a lot of people come fall have a religion around Friday night lights, around high school football. That's, that's right. That's <laughs> right. right. Like you're implying, they organize their entire worlds around those, you know, those events and football games. Yeah, and to organize themselves, organize, they find like-minded people. There's a, a, now, this is my term for the audience, and I am not pretending to be a professor, but they define goodness and, and sort of not goodness in the sense of, you know, what a player or a coach leaves on the field and all of those things. Okay, so thank you for that. Now, there's a couple other terms that I just want to just get into as we go 
into this. So you are a professor of African and African-American studies. What's an African-American? Well, now you're asking other really complicated questions. I guess you just you just started from 100 and and, and you asked me the first question. Now you went to the second question and you're about you, you, you started at 100. You're about at 105 now. <laughs> All right. OK. All right. So so there are different ways of understanding uh, what an African-American is. And I'm just going to give you what I think of the general uh, the general notion about what that is. It is a person who is not only of African descent, but a person who can trace his or her genealogy, heritage specifically to American slavery. So many people would, uh, the way I understand African-American, would include both of those. Of course, because there are many people who are here who are Black, who share African heritage, but who can't trace any of their, their background. Uh, their genealogy to American slavery. And so there's the question then, and I'm not, look, I'm not, I'm not trying to start stuff, but the, the question I've heard, for example, was Obama African-American, right? Because he wouldn't fit that definition. Yeah, yeah. Right. I, I just want to say one other thing, though, is that these are, these are political and contested categories, African-American, and they're also voluntary. And so I have friends who, who are from the Caribbean, for example, who understand themselves as Caribbean, and as African-American, because they identify with those of us who, who have our histories and genealogies here. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm OK with that. Yeah. Thank you for that definition. I like that in terms of African-American. I, I just really want to just just settle on a, a couple of things here. I will interject here, though, that is a part of our show is, is that secretly, I big ambition. So now it's not a secret anymore because I'm saying it is, is that I do want to see people who are of African descent connect more with each other and understand that African-American is a construct, that Caribbean is a con- construct, Afro-Colombian is a construct or what have you, all of those different things. So I do think that there is some uh, lots of common overlap, and then there's some 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 differences, right? I mean, just in terms of different things. So so we got that, okay. And what's African? So it's African and African American studies. It's an African. So so you know, most of my work falls on the African American side for obvious reasons, but part of my training was in African literature and other aspects of African studies, and and I can teach that course. Uh, and others on the African side, and and I have taught it. But when people say African, as in African and African American studies, they're mostly talking about the culture, culture, history, intellectual production, life, specifically on the continent. Right? It doesn't mean, of course, that there isn't a diaspora of African people, you know, or people who are descended from Africa. But I think that nomenclature in the African and African American studies simply means that the focus on Africa as a continent and its people, its culture, and so on, is a major aspect and focus of of our work. Got it. Okay. All right. All right. So now we're doing all of this just to to get started. So, and then the last definition, and then we'll sort of jump into the episode. What is white? Define white for me. And I'm not talking about the color like I have like a sheet of paper white. I'm talking about white as it relates to 
the studies of religion in African and African-American. Yeah. What I think you're asking uh, me to define is whiteness. Okay. And again, there are various ways people look at what is whiteness. Some see whiteness as some signifier of behaviors, systems of knowledge, politics, erotics, uh, and on and on that are associated with people who understand themselves as white and are perceived as white, but, but see the two distinctly, this complex of knowledges and behaviors and values and over here, this embodiment of people who identify with that, they want to see those in technical terms. They want to separate the signify, signifier from the signified. In other words, whiteness and white people or those who are embodied and identify as white and are perceived as white are two different things. So in other words, that this complex of things, the, the, the politics, the ideologies, the erotics, the systems of knowledge that some people understand as whiteness can be performed by people who aren't embodied as or identify as white or are perceived as white. I want to close that gap. I want to close that gap in the way I understand whiteness and say this complex of factors, and there are many of them that we want to understand as whiteness, don't exist without the people who have articulated them, created them, and benefit from them and who maintain them through, through structures and violence. And so it's not that I don't believe whiteness can ex uh, exist in ways that can be performed by other people. I just want to identify what people call whiteness, which they try to separate from white people much more closely with people then who are embodied as white and understand themselves and are perceived as white. So I want to close that gap between whiteness and white people. I hope that's helpful because, again, when many scholars define whiteness, they're not talking about people. They're talking about all these other, again, what I'm calling a complex of values and ideas and politics and behaviors that are associated with white people but aren't co-equal with white people. So I think I got it. So in a, in a basic sense, Clarence Thomas, for instance, phenotype is, 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 is from Africa. He goes to African slavery or what have you, but a lot of his, the way he organizes himself in terms of his political thought and the way he structures sort of decisions or what have you, some people may per be perceived that to be within the realm of whiteness. I'm, that, that's exactly right. And I'm saying, sure, Somebody like Clarence Thomas can can perform on a certain level and reinforce whiteness with his policies and behaviors and that kind of thing. But that's always limited so that if he if he's perceived of as being out of place, for example, the system will actually remind him that he's actually not white. Right. And so there are all kinds of, of competing systems and ideas yeah, yeah. that that's why I call whiteness a complex, not just because it's complicated. Yeah. But because there are many factors, again, knowledges, behaviors, values that that make it up. I got it. I, I Well, so I have enough and I have enough at least to direct our listeners to Jay-Z's The Story of O.J. And, uh, and, and then and then I think we can clear a lot of that up. So so listen, 
I don't want to to spend the bulk of our time there, but I thought it was really important just to level set on some some terms, especially around religion and and black, African American, white, and what have you, as we get into sort of what's happening now in this moment. And I want to start this moment with, well, let's say this. So we've we've had, I don't think it's been formally announced in terms of we are anticipating an overturning of Roe. We have a very organized and sustained and passionate movement around anti-CRT. And and I don't want to even get into that term because I'm just going to say it's anti you talking about black stuff around me and my kids. That's just just black history. And let's just even shorten that and just say it's just anti-black. Yeah, there we go. All right. So we have that. We have that. We have, you know, all of the things that are around the environment. We have this uh, backlash uh, in 2020. We had George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and sort of this racial reckoning around violence. And then you fast forward to now, whereas in Florida and Texas and other states, you're beginning to have anti-protest bills or what have you. But I actually want to go back to, I guess it would be 2015, 2016. And there was an article and I don't remember who the, the author was in, in the Washington Post. It was actually an op-ed, and this was a, a white preacher who took his nephew to a Trump rally, and he said he was very disturbed because what he said is he saw it more of a religious experience, not a spiritual, not like there was going to be communion or anybody was going to be baptized, but it was a religious sort of thing. And I thought that was really interesting because I was sensing something else was going on there. It wasn't just a a rally around sort of we are for smaller taxes, we are for, you know, globalization, or we're for we're pro-labor or anti-labor. It was something else going on there. And he really summed up well. I'll I'll post that for our, our listeners. But then all of a sudden, fast forward, Trump became the candidate of the evangelicals. So saying all of that to say in putting this, what does religion have to do with this current moment? How can, how can religion inform us in this current moment? Well, let's, let's go back to how I described religion in the first place. Religion is about meaning making the root religio literally means that which binds us or or that which binds us together. And so the question is, and this is not my question, but the question is then what binds us in this world? And I want to go one more step and say that not only is race then become a religious concept, actually race and religion are all have always been intertwined in modernity and can't be disassociated from one another. But then this current moment when we're talking about whiteness, we're talking about the ways in which people who understand themselves as white come to understand, make sense of, experience and organize the world. And whiteness becomes the primary lens, the primary way that this happens. And more so, if we're talking about these these social groupings that we're calling race, this is what binds us in the world. And so whiteness binds these folks, perhaps more than others. 
in the world in a meaningful way, again, such that, and this is not just the conservative white people, this is whiteness in general when I talk about it, such that whiteness becomes the primary meaningful lens by which folks come to understand and experience and know the world, which means whiteness, the way I'm understanding it, is the primary religious category for people who identify as white. Not evangelicalism, not whatever these other religious categories are. It's whiteness. And I argue that whiteness colonizes and populates these religious categories. Such, again, that that whiteness is the primary religion. It is the primary religious orientation of the folks who identify and understand themselves as white. So since then, when, when, you know, the folks you're talking about went to a Trump rally, because these are folks who are not trying to hide it. They're not, they're not, they're not trying to sanitize their perspective, much like some of our moderate or, or liberal friends who, who might be white. These are folks who feel a sense of threat that this way that they've come to value their existence as white is somehow coming under attack or is threatened. And they're out here because they want to consolidate, reinforce, and reproduce the benefits of whiteness. They think there is something here that is in jeopardy of being lost. And so they're not interested in playing these games that, that some moderate and liberal white people are. Right. right. And sometimes the modern liberal white folks, even Martin Luther King said, and Malcolm X too, that can be even worse because they play these games. The folks you're talking about, they, they clearly perceive a threat, real or imagined. And I think it's mostly imagined. But they are enacting myths and rituals to reinforce and reproduce a certain world in which whiteness had no bounds. Whiteness didn't answer anybody. Whiteness had no consequences outside of whiteness itself. And you, you can't get more religious than that. Yeah. And, and, and so I think one of the things that you are, are describing or it takes me to is that early in sort of my what I call adult, adult, real adult, like like, I, I, you know, they're adults when you're in college. But I was an adult that was utterly dependent on my folks sending me some bread down to Mississippi so I could, I, I was and in between, if I, I in, in between semesters going home to my folks' house, but when I would, became an adult, like, okay, this is on me, I was working in a GM factory in central Indiana, in, in Indianapolis. And this is during the H.W. Bush years, George H.W. Bush, George Bush, the first Bush president. But at that time, you could go into the parking lot and this was a heavy, this was a heavy United Auto Workers area. These were people that would decidedly from a class standpoint, be middle class or working working class or what have you. And you would see tons of stickers that were, were leftovers at this point that said Reagan and Bush. Like people were still holding Reagan and Bush, even though Reagan was gone. And so there was a lot of discussion around that, you know, Reagan hated the unions. Reagan came in like I'm busting up unions or what have you. And so when people would say, or even today say, you know, things around whether it's expanding Medicaid or what have you, that there are white working class people who are voting against their interest. Yes. But the way you're talking about 
religion, what would be their interest? Their interest is in the, the, the continued perseverance and reproduction of how they've come to understand and perceive the world, including the benefits that they gain from it. And that is the maintenance and reproduction of whiteness. Right. And so we, we you know, people use terms like white privilege, which I don't use because I don't even think it's robust enough to capture what I'm arguing here and what I'm saying. The benefits of whiteness for many folks, uh, real and imagined, are, are much more central to how they understand themselves and the world, right? These aren't just privileges. This is the very world in which they exist, the very world that gives them meaning, the very, the very world that they experience, the lens through which they see everything. And so, you know, the term white privilege to me doesn't even doesn't rise to the, to the sort of ontological level or status in a way that is able to capture what I want to understand or and how I want to understand whiteness functioning in this case. And so for the poor white people, you know, it's, it's, it's not even about economic status. Their concerns are about being white. That's what's to gain and to maintain for them. I'm, I'm also then now going way back a couple of hundred years ago is that how sort of the the planters and bankers in New York could convince unemployed white people in the South that slavery was good for them because somehow they you you're white. So you do have a chance to advance in, in, in this slave society. That's exactly right. Okay. And and even Du Bois talks about that in his essay Souls of White Folk. Okay. That that for the for, for white people, unlike black people, even if they're poor, there's always this potential, just as you point out, to to rise in levels of status because of their whiteness that black people will never have. And Du Bois actually discusses this if if your audience is listening, if they've never read Souls of White Folk by Du Bois, I think he probably initially wrote it probably somewhere around 1910, okay. in which he uses the term the religion of whiteness, by the way. Uh, I was using the term before I knew Du Bois was using it. Got it. And when I read the Souls of White Folks, I'm like, see, I, I, start, I, I thought I started something and invented something. It's but the rare that we invent things, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> right. But Du Bois was using the term decades ago to describe some of what I'm what I'm talking about now. And, and just like you, you said, Du Bois makes that very point, that white people, yes, because of their whiteness, regardless of their social status, have an opportunity to, to move up. So I, I do want to talk about the, I think that helps me now understand, and, and most people are not, not conscious of what you're saying now. This is just how how it works, right? This is just the, the, just the, through images that all of us take in, we begin to organize things certain ways. And so when I look at the television and I see parents in Virginia and Georgia and Louisiana and, and Wisconsin and everywhere else at school board meetings saying that CRT is against their religion, okay? Some Someone who is I'm going to identify myself as a Christ follower, a Christian. I've read the Christian Bible a bunch of different times. 
ain't nothing about CRT or history of that thing that in there. So when I hear that, I'm like, what are they they talking about? Is this is this what is what you're defining as religion? What they are consciously and probably subconsciously talking about? I, I think so. What what they are articulating is CRT as a religious stand-in for a certain mythology, a certain white mythology that understands white people as the center of the cosmos, right? White people is utterly important in the American narrative and mythology. And CRT as a stand-in for those narratives, those truths, those social and historical facts that might somehow disrupt that such that they and their children lose this sense of imminence in the world. In other words, when they say, well, I don't want my, my child feeling you know, sorry or guilty, what they, what they really mean is, what the push really is against is anything that would disrupt this narrative of whiteness as ultimately goodness and whiteness as the center of the American narrative. That's really what they're saying. Again, some of them are conscious of it, like you like you point out, like the white nationalists certainly seem to be, yep. and the white supremacists, some of them are not. Yeah, and, and listen, you know, a, a big part of what what my show is about is is I've said a bunch of times in private conversations and public conversations is that it's not that I am for uh, racial slurs or people going in offices, hanging nooses, and all of those things, but. Over time, what I'm hoping to produce is a thought in people that, and and in myself, is that we begin to understand what the structure of sort of what white supremacy is and the structure of what institutional racism is and those kinds of things. And I think that's what you are are helping to uh, helping understand. It is what I'm trying to articulate, and in my in my chapter in the book, the religion of white rage. Okay which I co-edited with uh, Lori Latrice Martin and Biko Mandela Gray. Chapter one is called Make America Great Again. That's my chapter. Make America Great Again, I think it's something like racial pathology, white consolidation, and melancholia in Trump's America. And what I try to do in that chapter is to think through, and I'm not sure I did it so well, but I was, I was trying to think through the very structure of whiteness as a structure of myth and ritual. And I tried to lay that out in that chapter, as well as some of the things that happen, because that's what we're talking about here, when those who understand themselves as white feel that the mythology and the, the attendant benefits are threatened. And that's what I call white consolidation. And there's a structure to white consolidation as well. And in the end, white consolidation makes the victim the person who tried to point out the social, social and historical fact right. of whiteness, right? That's part of the structure of consolidation. You, you, you talking about race, you the racist. You, you Mark, you, right. you being racist for bringing this up. What do you mean? Uh, what do you mean? Everybody on the Dallas Cowboys, most of the Dallas Cowboys players are, are, are black. The most of how can the NFL be racist and got all these black players? I, 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 I got you. Now, I want to, to, to say or ask in this moment, and you, and you mentioned, I'm going to ask you to define violence in a minute, but there are a couple of things in that, that I've seen, and there's a couple of dates, and I want to say 1870s. 
right? And so we have post the Civil War and we're a few years into Reconstruction. Then there's, you know, the first black coats and there's a whole lot of physical violence that is going on. And we have 1919. We have black men going off to World War One and coming back proud and, and having proved themselves in, in, the, in, the, in that field of battle or that form of, of, of battle. But it's also the time when black farming and black ownership of farms is at its peak at that time. And then we have civil rights movement and there's a sort of a backlash, which is, which is role in voting rights act. And I would point people to several articles that talk about how they, that these, these things were deconstructed voting rights act is the way we started to be deconstructed the day after it, it would pass the same with Roe. And then sort of, we have a backlash now now, I don't know if this is the Obama backlash, because Trump is an Obama backlash for sure, right? But then there's this whole thing of seeing the cruelty of what happened with George Floyd did bring a sort of racial reckoning. And now there's just roaring coming back of what I would call whiteness, by your definition, fighting to reestablish itself. Let me ask you, with that in mind, Somewhere you said this is about structures and violence. Yes. Is violence limited to physical violence like a punch or what have you? Or does it, no. does it, okay, where, where does, where does violence fit into this? Well, the question of violence is, is a good one. And I, and I hope I can, I can be helpful here. There are some folks who study violence who are going to have much more intricate understandings of it than I do. But for me, violence is far more than physical. There's also violence when it comes to knowledge, for example, teaching that black people are inferior, inferior, despite historical evidence to the contrary, or that white people are superior or central to the not just the American narrative, but central to the, the planet. I mean, I want to understand these as forms of, of violence because they negate other human beings. Right. They are they are dehumanizing to other people who are not understood as white or perceived as white. I don't want to discount the physical violence, though, because whiteness comes into existence fully around 1800, so early 19th century, and it doesn't come into existence, nor is it maintained without physical violence. Sure. But these other forms of violence also participate in supporting and justifying the physical violence. So they act together. So some might call it discursive violence. Some use the term epistemic violence. There are all kinds of ways of understanding these other forms of violence. But but I think what I'm trying to what I'm trying to articulate in a basic sense is that there are forms of knowledge and negation that are also primary forms of violence that interact with physical violence here and support it and justify it in kind of a cyclical way, in fact. And that's also what you were just pointing out. Right. In these various moments, you talked about this backlash. Right. And when I talk about white consolidation, I'm trying to give a fuller articulation to what you and uh, Kwame Ture and Martin Luther King Jr. and all the folks who I know who have used the term white backlash are saying. I'm trying to expand that and say it's a much fuller, a much bigger project of whiteness 
that cuts across sexual orientations, social classes, political parties, and so on, and has to be understood not only in, in psychoanalytic terms, but also in religious ones. Because when, when we get these backlashes, quote unquote, to the perceived loss of white benefits or the perceived loss of the, of the black object upon which whiteness is based, right? I mean, one of the, one of the worst things was an escaped slave yeah. or black people who don't genuflect to whiteness. There's something about constituting blackness as the object or the other, which is an object that, that is erotic for whiteness and violence such that when, when Black people articulate a certain independence, intellectual or otherwise, that there is this, this, this violent rage, this rage of whiteness that seeks to return life and the cosmos and the world to a, to a certain homeostasis or an originary state, right, in which whiteness understands itself. Almost, almost a sense of whiteness as Edenic. Right. And by Edenic, I mean, think of the Garden of Eden. Yeah. Right. And the sense of peace before the fall. Right. The mythology of whiteness understands whiteness. And I'm not saying it's real or historical, but this is the mythology that undergirds whiteness, that there was a time when whiteness was unbounded. Right. And free. Wasn't bound by law or consequence or people who weren't white. And so. January 6th, for example, I see as an eruption of this myth and ritual, this sense of returning America back to this mythical Edenic space that was free and good for white people. This is what Make America Great Again is all about. It signals a myth. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, we well, yeah. want to return. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, listen, first off, before I move on to one point, I'm right. I just wrote this down and I'm going to tell my mother that my name got brought up in the same breath or the same series of breaths with Kwame Ture and Martin Luther King. Now, I'm not claiming that, but it's on. It's being recorded. It's been recorded. So I'm, I'm going to okay, keep let me, it. <laughs> let me add one thing. Let me add one thing. Yeah. My, one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s best essays was Racism and the White Backlash in his 1967 book. Where do we go from here? Chaos or community? And one of the one of the things he says in that chapter is, first of all, the, uh, he, he he claims that white people have never fully accepted black people and have never really tried to bring about equity, or equality for black people. And he describes the backlash as this: He says, when we take one step forward, and the, and you you talked about this too, you you alluded to this too. He said we take two steps back. That's the backlash. And that those two steps back are often accompanied by these forms of violence, both physical and these narrative forms of violence. These discourses, again, about white, white place in the world, their loss, black inferiority, black criminality, and so on. All of these narrative forms of violence serve to justify these other forms of violence, all which work in service of trying to recreate this Edenic mythical space for whiteness in which it sees its origins. Is that what you see uh, or what I see or what people see, you know, whether it could be in New York, it could be in San Francisco, where you will have someone in a 
7-Eleven or some convenience store and speaking to someone and saying, speak English. Like, why? And they talk to people who are speaking Spanish to themselves. They're having a conversation amongst themselves and somebody chastises them to speak English. Is that is that fall under that umbrella of violence? It, it, it has to because it is perceived this this need to police people who are seen as not truly American, including their language, cuts across this mythology that America was a melting pot, right? Well, what did it mean by melting pot? They mean all these Europeans came, you know, these people who were to become white came over and formed the American nation. Well, that's the mythology. But what about Native Americans and the genocide? What about all the violence? We talk about slavery. We never really capture the violence of slavery. Or like you said, the 1870s, you know, so post-Reconstruction lynchings. We talk about racism and slavery and these kind of terms. We never really capture the utter violence that people who understood themselves as white enacted on people who were non-white, Native Americans and African-Americans and so on, in order to reproduce this mythology, to make, to, to, to stabilize this mythology of white greatness, white centrality to America and to the cosmos that they perceived was under threat by so-called black progress or the progress or the incursion of people from other countries who are speaking other languages. Why? Because to them, they're, they're admitting tacitly that they understand America as white space and as a white nation. How dare you speak, you know, Farsi or Arabic or Spanish or any other language? Yeah. And it's 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 also in that that sort of the way you're talking about it. And this is, I think, um, very helpful for me, at least, in understanding why in the in the 70s you had Jimmy Carter, who is a Sunday school teacher, (laughs) but Ronald Reagan who was not a person of faith. And this is, we're not going to define that, right? So we're not going to define that. We're not going to go in that. But Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter, I don't know if he's doing it now because he's just up in age, but he taught, like literally taught Sunday school every day. But there was this perception that Ronald Reagan was the faith candidate then. Is that, that's, that helps it there. Now, a couple of, couple of questions. So physical violence is a thing, but by definition, then housing segregation is a form of violence. Sure. Be- because housing segregation is a form of violence because it curtails people's potential. It limits them and their opportunities for flourishing. And that's, that's, a, that's a form of violence. Got it. Got it. Okay. Anything dehumanizing can be understood as a, that's right, and negating in, in those senses can be understood as a form of violence. Okay. All right. So thank you for all of that. That took us, <laughs> took, took me a minute to get here at least. So in your courses and people who take your class or what have you, what's the point in presenting religion in this way? What are you hoping that someone comes out of this with? What If, if they come into your course of study, what would you hope they come out of it with? Well, I would hope students come out of my classes with a couple of things, if you don't mind me me plugging my primary discipline, first of all. One of the things that I want people to understand is the utter importance of religion to understanding the world and America. 
and whiteness and all of these things we're talking about. It is utterly essential to make sense of things. You can't even understand, one can't even understand January 6th without the myth and ritual of whiteness because that's precisely what it was about. It wasn't about economics at all. It was about these mythologies of, of whiteness and these benefits, all of which I want to understand as religious. So that's the first thing. The second thing I want my students, whomever they are, uh, and I, I, I end up with a cross-section of students, lots of white, white students, lots of black students, sometimes students who are Asian, South Asian, Latinx, that race and religion are important to understand, important to our learning, just as much and important to the world, just as much as the STEM disciplines. In fact, I would argue that they're even more important because the STEM disciplines are are so heavily promoted and resourced because people care about jobs. Yes. And they think education is all about jobs. Right. Well, what about people's ability to live in a complicated world? Yeah. That is complex in a world of difference when it comes to gender, race, sexuality, social status, and so on. And that's the second point there is is also an important factor that I want my students and your your audience to get. That these colleges and universities around the country have continuously, over the last several years, defunded and cut the humanities. And we wonder why we end up with, with January 6th. And we want to portray those folks as poor white people and backwoods folks. And they weren't. Um, These were educated, professional folks, many of whom were college educated. And we wonder why we end up with the world in which we live, where we can't get along and why there's this continual backlash or, again, what I'm calling white consolidation. It's because we're we're hurting these students through K through 12 and through college. First of all, concealing the truth. Yeah. That's what's happening with the whole CRT thing. We don't want to deal with, with, with the reality of America. And when we don't want to deal with the reality of America, Charles Long would argue that we miss an opportunity to transform America. Right. But the other thing is, is because we, we, we think education is all about employment. And that's just, that's just backwards. And that includes my institution. They care about jobs. Hey, I know it firsthand, both as as a child of parents and then, you know, I have my children now. You want them to to do well. But I, I will tell you that through reading and travel or what have you, I would triple down on the humanities and the lack of humanities being taught. And even and I've worked in in STEM and technology. And so you have so many people that can't you know, just sit in a room with different people. And I'm not, I'm not even talking about racist or sexist or what have you, just the inability to navigate with, with other people and just to understand different perspectives. So that's exactly right. And, and, and as important as the STEM disciplines are, you know, folks who are educated narrowly in those disciplines, yeah. once they start talking about, stop talking about mathematics and science, it's hard to talk about the world or anything beyond that. With these folks. Yeah. And, I, and you know, and, and I, I don't want to beat this, but, you know, there's a there's a point of when I hear people overemphasizing that, like you do understand now we're training people and not educating them. Right. Is that, That's right. right. So 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 we we are not doing that. Let's 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 transition a bit. And 
I would like to get your perspective. Uh, one of the things that when Nicole Hannah-Jones was going to go to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill to be a professor and the whole thing fell apart for different reasons. She ends up at Howard. But one of the things that came out of that is black professors at historically white colleges have a uniquely heavy load to bear. So what are you experiencing, you and other black professors experiencing at LSU or your peers across the nation? What, what is that like? What's the load like? Well, there's, there's so much to talk about here when it comes to my experience and the experience of African-Americans at PWIs or predominantly white universities. And one of the things I, I try to tell administrators uh, who want to talk to me about this, first of all, they don't, they don't, administrators who want to, who say they're interested in diversity, don't often talk to us as if we have expertise to offer. And I do work specifically on these matters and they don't talk to us. But, but one of the things that's important to understand is that there are actually very few in terms of percentage African-Americans who are tenured or on the tenure track in the United States. Some numbers are roughly around four or five percent. That's really low. And that's including HBCUs, where the estimates uh, range from anywhere to 50 percent to 96 percent. I actually read an article that said 96 percent of African-Americans who are tenured on tenure track teach at HBCUs. That leaves a really small number, whether it's 50 percent or 25 percent or 96 percent who teach at predominantly white institutions. So think about then the labor not just the emotional labor of being one of the few black people. And by the way, I need to add that among those African-American men are actually the smaller number of those. So imagine, imagine how rare then African-American tenured or tenure track professors actually are at PWIs. And I try to help my uh, administrators who actually talk to me understand this because we have to perform all kinds of physical labor on committees and so on, but also this representational labor. They want a black face. So they need you to show up at something. They need you to be on a particular committee that's regarding diversity. And by the way, they don't offer compensation for this. Right. Well, this is the extra duty. Some people have called this sort of the black tax. Yeah. Right. You, you've heard the term. Oh, yeah. This is the extra that that comes with being an African-American professor at a white school. So, so, so that's the general background that we're actually quite rare, but we don't get treated as if we're rare and significant as if these universities need to do more to recruit us and to retain us through all kinds of benefits and compensation, not just because the, the competitive nature of the marketplace for us, but because of the excess labor that we're called upon to perform. And I mean, I mean both physical labor and symbolic labor. For example, at, at my university, there's a picture of me in a mural in the college office on the wall. I end up on brochures. I've been at least on two brochures. Yeah. Students are always sending me pictures of my image on a picture in a building where I've never been yeah. of, a, of a different, not religious studies or African, African-American studies. So there's this symbolic labor that our image and images are forced to, 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 to carry and to perform, and yet there isn't the 
commensurate respect and compensation for all of this. At my college, uh, they used to do something, and that's humanities and social sciences at Louisiana State. They used to do something called LSU Kickoff. LSU Kickoff was a recru- uh, supposed to be a recruiting event that they uh, did throughout the year. Well, in the last, the last couple of deans who have done LSU Kickoffs, they haven't done it during the pandemic, my picture shows up in their presentation three or four times. But what happens when I ask for compensation? Yeah. Not just because of, of their use of my image to promote their product, but the excess labor of being one of the few African-Americans yeah. who has to be on all kinds of committees, who's both jointly appointed in religious studies and African and African-American studies, yeah. and is the inaugural chair in building one of those departments with very few resources and help from the ground up. And then we ask for compensation and it's denied based on equity. Now, now this isn't what I've heard. I asked my dean, after having given him a long list of duties that I perform, including all the heavy work that has to be done to build a department. And in my memo, I said, look, all of this is is more than anyone has to perform. This has no analogy among any chairs in the college. Not only did my dean not respond to that, I was asking for a course release. In other words, I was asking for a reduction of a course not to teach in a particular semester, to do all this other extraneous labor. Not only did he not uh, respond to that memo, but when I finally brought it up, the dean denied my request based on equity. Now, now imagine, imagine how bizarre that world is, where he denies an African-American professor who is building a department with only a few thousand and no fully appointed faculty to help him build that department. And the reason to deny very modest benefits, I was only asking for one course release, and that the reason to deny that is equity. I couldn't make that up. Yeah, you know, that's unfortunate, but it's also, now it's different in different terminologies. It's not much different than what I've definitely heard from Black executives in the corporate sphere, especially over the last couple of years when there's just sort of this heightened need to at least have a perception of wanting to be diverse and in, in, in serving on panels and committees and listening sessions and and all of those things. So it's very much a lot. Now, now listen, and, and I will also tell you this, is that you can always tell <laughs> what any organization values is, is you can look at the budget and you know what they value. So, so if you saw my budget to yeah. build this and, and run this department yeah. and resources that I have to help me carry out this work, you could draw your own conclusions then about who matters and who doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me ask one other question in, in that sphere. How are the students doing? in this space and in at historically. And I and, and listen, I use the term historically white and PW. I use the, the term historically white because historically George Wallace brought the uh, <laughs> the 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 uh, Alabama National Guard to say you can't come in. So I, I think it's it, we there's a historic on, on both ends. But either but how are the students performing in this space? And I'm not talking about academically performing. How are they doing? I I think it varies how students are doing at predominantly white institutions, at least the students in my classes and my program. I think for many of them, 
especially the, the African-American ones, they, they report a lot of stress and uh, depression. But over the last couple of years, obviously, I think white students and other students are reporting higher levels of depression and lack of motivation. It's, it's really tough over the last couple of years for all of these students. Yeah. And um, being an African-American professor, and actually the research shows this, people are actually more comfortable reaching out to us, students, when they're having difficulties. Yeah. And so we bear a higher level of burden, not just for mentoring, but for care of these students. Now, sure, there are these institutions where we can refer folks and stuff like that if we need them. But the students, the students aren't necessarily seeking that as their primary contact. They want contact and communication from us. Yeah. And this isn't something that the colleges and universities consider, at least not in my experience, when they think about what we need as African-American faculty and, and our compensation and our labor. There are all kinds of things that are totally ignored because they're just not seen as important in, in historically white colleges, universities, or PWIs. They're just, and, and that's the reality. And I want to say that, and then I'll, then I'll stop. The research actually shows, and this isn't conjecture, their data actually shows that there aren't more African-American professors. There are two forms of research that I want to say something about really quickly. There aren't more African-American faculty at predominantly white institutions. One, because they don't want them there. And the data actually shows that. Two, the research shows that if we're going to increase diversity, that the heads of the search committees where they're seeking to hire new faculty, if you want more black faculty, then black people have to be at the head of those search committees. But what does that mean? That means more labor for us for a problem that we didn't create. Right. And it also means that white and other faculty are either unwilling or unable to create a, an, an environment of flourishing that reflects more American, in my case, Louisiana, which is 33% Black, and I work at the flagship. Thank you for that. And I don't know what the, the current numbers are, but it was a couple of years ago, the Georgia, same thing, is like 33%, 34%, maybe higher, and the census was so jacked up. Who knows what the actual number is? But let's call it mid-30s percent citizens in the state of Georgia are Black. And I want to say the number of Black students at the flagship UGA in Athens is somewhere between four and seven percent. You know, maybe it, 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 it's, it's just it's just not a lot. And then going back to even what we talked about with violence, I've seen it. I, I have three children and I've seen what violence looks like in education because my kids have gone to hyper segregated schools. And then in some cases I have the word, I'm not talking about best in terms of quality, but probably really sturdy or shining examples of what a gentrified education in gentrified public education could look like gentrified, well-funded public education could look like I've seen it, seen it all. And so saying that to say, is that organizations typically end up looking the way that the people in charge want them to look, right? Because and, it, and I want to add something to that. Yeah. I want to add something to that insight. 
One of the most brilliant scholars in this area is a scholar, I think her name is Sarah Ahmed, and she does work on education. And she has a brilliant essay article called The Phenomenology of Whiteness. She, she argues this in that article, but, but also in, in her books and elsewhere, that these institutions, that basically their primary push is also the reproduction of those organizations. So if they're white, if the structures are white, if the professors are white, if the ideologies are white, that these institutions in their practices, in their hiring and so on, are seeking to reproduce all the structures of whiteness, of these institutions, regardless of the public image. Now, the public image requires black people because they, they, they need us. They don't want us, but they need us because they want to say they're progressive. They want to say they're good. They want to say there's a, there's a sense of openness in the culture where everyone is welcome. That's not really what the research says. That's not what the, the data says. She has this concept that she calls inhabiting whiteness. And, and what she means by that, she's not making an ontological claim. She's not saying that people of color or black people have to be white to work at these schools. But I do think that in part what she's saying is that the black people who get hired are black people who are seen as being able to navigate and handle white intellectual ideas and the canons across disciplines uh, that are almost in most disciplines are almost all white or exclusively white. And that, that, that we are people who have to be able to inhabit whiteness just to get these jobs, or at least perceived as being able to inhabit whiteness just to get these jobs. And so people like me who, who, who make noise because equity and fairness is actually quite important. Yeah. I mean, think about how people like me get treated and think about the uncomfortable fit of working at a white school. Hey, hey, you know what? Listen, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's going to take, I was getting ready to move to to something or our sort of final questions. But I want to ask you this, and you brought it up. I'm glad you triggered this. Who is Turning Point USA? Well, Turning Point USA is a conservative Nonprofit. And I say nonprofit, that's important. Yeah. They are an organization that seeks to gather information and collect data on professors who they see as liberal and progressive and who they cast as teaching Marxism, yeah. which they associate with, with tropes like critical race theory and so on, yeah. or who they cast as anti white. And the fact that they can have such a website, again, that's nonprofit, so they can seek donations, which is probably really what they're after here, is really a problem because they, they create what's called the professor watch list. And I don't know if you've seen my page no, because I I'm know. on the professor. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was going to ask. You've, you've earned a, a, a decorated place uh, on. Oh, the yeah. Turning- oh, yeah. <laughs> I have the distinction of being uh, having a feature page on the professor watch list. And I tell people who ask me, when you think of the professor watch list, think about a terror watch list because it's, it's analogous to that. These are people who they are so concerned about for teaching progressive ideas or Marxism or, or whatever, or teaching about whiteness that they put on this watch list as if the professors are on this list of some kind of threat to, to America. 
or something like that. And it's totally, and if you look at my page, they totally distort my work. Yeah. Right. In order to make the case that I that I belong on this watch list. I'm not teaching Marxism. It's not even anything that I really study. Right. Right. But you see that associated with me. Yeah. Yeah. Now, nah, listen, we had um, Howard French, who just wrote the book Born in Bra- Blackness, which sort of talks about Africans and African-Americans, but really African people in Barbados and then yeah. Colombia and everywhere sort of creating in the contributions to modernity. And I joked with him at the beginning of that episode and saying that this book is going to be banned. Now, I didn't actually mean that, but <laughs> in all likelihood, there's probably someone dream that up or it's already been done. Who knows? And I will also say that I really want people to understand that Marcus Garvey's quote, what people have done, people will do, doesn't just apply to black people. Right. So if, right. If, if there have been books banned before, if there have been people put on lists before, then it can be done again. And I would really urge black people, people who phenotype look white, but don't subscribe to whiteness in the sense of yeah. white white supremacy or, or those types of things to to speak up because we we need solid, insightful, educated voices. And, 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 and there's a reason why, and I want to thank you again for appearing on the podcast, is that I have a lot of interest in all of these things. But one of the things that we have been fortunate to have is to have really solid people with the with the insight, the skill, and the ability to articulate these ideas. So sorry that you, I don't know whether I'm sorry that you're on that list or glad that you're on that list, because if you're on that list, then that means you're actually doing something right. So <laughs> The interesting thing is that that's how uh, Black people, especially in the academy, interpret that. That that if I'm on that list, I must be doing something must right. Must be doing something right. That's right. Let me ask you this as we wrap up, Dr. Finley. What does it mean to live well? Oh my goodness. Uh you're asking a, a, a deeply philosophical question and you're 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 kind of putting me on the spot here. For me, I would say living well has to do with what some might call flourishing. The opportunity the resources to live a healthy life and to live a life of fulfillment and to live a life in relationship to other people that enables their own fulfillment. Just off the top of my head, that's what it would mean for me to live well. Not that I accumulate wealth or things, but that I live a life that's fulfilling to me that's not separate from, but it's also connected to my ability to contribute to other people flourishing as well. That's awesome. I appreciate that. Thank you for that. And on a lighter note or a different note, I know that you are a fan of the Scotch and the Stogies. Oh, Uh, yeah. Always. Always and I ain't mad. But take me, not take us. Take me through... Um, because I like the bourbons and whiskeys and rice, but you know something about the scotch I just hadn't got yet. So take me to if you were if you were going to where where would I start with scotch and where would I be on a um, what would be the high point for me? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I've, I've encountered other scotch questions. Yes, 
And uh, you, you and I share uh, a fraternity. Yes. And as you know, it's important when you meet other brothers that you know some things. Yes. That you have some important knowledge about the frat. Right. And, um, you know, Scott's drinkers can be just like that. I was at a fundraiser uh-huh. at an LSU football game yeah. in the president's suite, yeah. talking to some potential donors. And uh, there was a woman there. If, if she ever hears this, she'll know that I'm talking about her. I just met her. Uh, and she's a, a really well-known LSU uh, alumnus. And she actually wanted to quiz me on my knowledge of single malt scotches. Okay. Once, once she saw that I was drinking scotch. So among Scotch drinkers, it's important for some of them what you know. Yeah. Oh, about yeah. Scotch. yeah. 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 And, and I drink I drink single malt scotches. Okay. And um, single malt scotches uh, are distinct from blended scotches. Blended scotches might take various kinds of scotches, also from from different distilleries, and put them together. And there's nothing wrong with blended scotches. I drink scotches uh, that are singular in the sense that they come from one distillery you know, one barrel and so on that aren't blended or mixed. And single malt scotches basically come from about four different regions in Scotland. Uh, there are the Highlands, yeah. the Lowlands, and then there's the, um, the the river region that they call Speyside, and then there are the islands, or they call Isla. And for me, you know, the, the islands are where you get a lot of the, the peat moss. And so historically, peat moss was used to they they burned it in a way of and keeping the scotch uh the, the barley and so on that they use for scotch from sprouting and it it they found that it gave the scotch that they later produced sort of a smoky flavor and so i like scotches from you know single malt scotches from all those regions i tend to prefer the smokier scotches but that aren't too too smoky. Yeah. So you know, I would tell your listeners if they're interested to try a single malt scotch. Yeah. And uh, depending on what their tastes are, you know, just to experiment because you know a, a scotch is you know can be enjoyed by itself, but pairings are also important. What you, what you eat with a scotch is going to taste the flavor of it. Oh yeah. What you do, I like cigars. Right. Right. And so sometimes there are cigars that have a different interaction with various scotches. So I would just tell them, first of all, just, just pick something. Just pick something. Just try it. Just, there you go. just pick something based on the intuition. And then from there, determine what they like by trying different pairings and then try another scotch from another region, you know, another distillery, and try some other pairings until they figure out what they like. I mean, there's no, there really isn't a science here. Yeah. It's really what you like and what you try. And how you like, I like some of my favorite cigars. I like with cream and coffee. There you go. Hey, listen, so much of life is is really, you know, just experimenting. What you like is what's right. So having said that, one more question. If you've got the right single malt scotch and the right cigar, what's the music that would go along with that for Dr. Stephen Fenwick? Well, well, first of all, I misspoke a minute ago. I like a good cigar, certain cigars with cream and coffee. Okay, okay. Right? There's there some scotches, for example, really smoky scotches that I like with something sweet like a cheesecake. Got it. Okay, okay. In, in terms of music or sounds, I li- sometimes I like music, but honestly, the sounds that I like most are of uh, my fountain in my courtyard 
and the fountain that I have in the pond uh, in my yard. Those are my favorite, favorite sounds. Just to sit and relax and to listen to that water and to enjoy a good scotch and sometimes a cigar or something else. And if I was going to listen to music, like I am in the background, but you can't hear it, uh-huh. it's, it's a little jazz. It's a little classical jazz. You know, the smooth jazz is okay. Yeah. Right. But I like I like older jazz. I like Alice Coltrane oh, and stuff like that. Yeah. Right. Say say more. Hey, listen. Hey, that's the, the name of our show is the Parlay in All Blue because it's a nod to all blues derived music. And if you when I worked with the artist for our I said I want something that looks like classic blue note era jazz album if you ever look at the, the ladder or what have you so hey listen hey for, if you say alice coltrane i'm 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 right there and 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 monk and and john coltrane and lee morgan and Woody Shaw. yeah listen hey okay so we there and pharaoh sanders and part of why i like that music so much maybe has to do with not just being an introvert but my interest in religion I, you know and how those kinds of 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 jazz, um, what's what's the word I'm looking for? Those kind of jazz appropriations incorporate certain religious sentiment. Like for for Alice Coltrane, it was Hinduism. Yeah. For John Coltrane, it was this sort of deep black spirituality yeah. and Buddhism and so on. And for me, that comes across in a, in the music in a beautiful way. That is also a really relaxing and peaceful way. And so what, you know, what, what's better than, than that kind of jazz with scotch and or a good cigar? Hey, listen, you are, we, we have to have you back for another episode because back to this point of where you were talking about with the humanities is, is that I did not think, and I mean, and I'm not putting more on this than it is, but really my really love for jazz came when I was back in Indianapolis and this is right after our college. And I went on my own one man protest because the cable system did not have BET. So I'm like, if y'all don't have BET, then I ain't getting no cable. So I didn't have cable TV. And so I missed all of the videos and I love rapping R&B and all of that. But because I had that, there was a jazz show that would come on on the weekend and that's what really got me into it. And, and, and the, But there's a bigger point here is that there is a point of, like you said, being quiet or what have you, and that that, uh, that jazz also pulls you through is, is that everything isn't meant to be consumed in three minutes or four minutes and have a – some things are supposed to seep into the imagination and, and take a different form. So, is that louder? Can you, I might have you repeat that because I have a friend. I'm always reminding her, sip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sips. <laughs> it sips. It sips. Well, listen, Dr. Finley, we so appreciate you. And when I say we appreciate you, we at the Parlay and All Blue appreciate you. I think our listeners, people who are Black phenotype, white phenotype, people who are Latina dad or what have you that are trying to be more human in the world and not subscribe to <laughs> the religion of whiteness, right? Or what have you will appreciate this. And we wish you all the best. And um, thank you for joining us on the Parlay in All Blue. I appreciate this opportunity to visit with you and just say a little bit about what's on my mind. I hope your, your listeners appreciate it. 
and uh, that it helps them to, to live in this ever complicated world. We appreciate you here at the Parlay in All Blue. Please tell someone about us, share the podcast, make sure you leave a comment. You can find the Parlay in All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or Stitcher, wherever you receive your podcast. You can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite, follow us, or subscribe. Whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Market G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.